Our reading today is taken from Mark's Gospel and the fifth chapter. We're beginning to read at verse 21 and continuing to the end. Mark 5, verse 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hand on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straight away the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead, why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entered in, where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand, and said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Okay. Okay. 
Well, today's account follows directly on from the one we considered last week. There, Jesus performed a miracle, but the people begged him to go away. Now, back on the other side of the sea, he is begged to come. He leaves one shore with the sound of go away ringing in his ears and he lands on the other shore to be met with a plea to come and help. Thus are the two attitudes of this world. This plea comes from Jairus. It tells us he was one of the rulers in the local synagogue. It's extremely likely that Jairus witnessed Jesus casting out the demon in the synagogue that we considered a few weeks ago. Again, we can see in this the two extremes of reaction to Jesus' miracles. You could have a religious leader who wanted to kill Jesus, while another would be bowing down at his feet and worshipping him. Jairus comes to Jesus in faith. He believes that Jesus Christ has the power to save his daughter from dying. Jesus has compassion on the man and agrees to go with him. On the way to the house, there's a distraction. A sick woman is in the crowd. For 12 years, she's suffered with continuous bleeding. She too has faith. She believes that Jesus Christ has the power to heal her. Now we might say that her faith is greater than that of Jairus. She has it in her head that if she can just touch his clothing, she'll receive his healing. Well, she does. And she's healed. Jesus stops and looks around. He asks the question, Who touched me? You might be expecting me to say, Now, of course, Jesus already knew who touched him. You might be hoping that I'll mention the omniscience of Jesus, that he knows all things. If so, I'm going to disappoint you. I've already said the incarnation is a mystery. That is, although there are aspects of it we can understand, there are others we can't. You might remember <clears throat> yeah, last time I said that if anything, reformed folk are more likely to err on the side of Jesus' divinity, thinking that's the safer option. I want to I want to preach the word of God faithfully without fear of man. And I know that if I propose that Jesus didn't know everything while on this earth, I risk infuriating some people. You know, if I said to them that 
At the age of five, Jesus did not understand particle physics. Then they might disagree and say, no, as the omniscient God, he knew everything. Well, I just have to pray to God he would help me preach with wisdom. And I I won't refrain from preaching what I believe is God's truth just so I can keep men happy. Now with that said, we'll get back to this. I, I can't always tell you what Jesus knew or didn't know. I can tell you that the whole distraction caused by this woman was ordained of God. And later on, we'll see why it was. The woman's scared to own up when Jesus asks that question, and for several reasons. Well, she's female, and it wasn't proper for women to speak publicly. She'd be revealing very personal health issues to a crowd of people. And she may be thinking that Jesus was offended by what she did. Jesus' words are so kind. He calls her daughter. He tells her that it was by faith that she was healed. In this she, in, in this she learns from him that he wasn't wearing magical clothes. It was just through faith. He tells her to go in peace. No more to suffer at the hands of physicians. No more to be treated like an outcast. And in telling her that her disease has been cured, something she was already aware of, the onlookers learn that a great miracle has taken place. He resumes his mission. But on the way, they're met by others. They announce that the child, the daughter of Jairus, is now dead it's not worth bothering now it's too late Jesus isn't phased by this one bit he simply turns to Jairus and says don't be afraid just believe at the house there's a great commotion very noisy there are loud lamentations because of the death of the child like most of you I've, I've been to a lot of funerals and the, the sad of course I do remember though something from when I was quite young uh, which made me laugh and it makes me laugh to, to, when I hear it today You know as well as I do that there are people who go to funerals who have very little connection with the person who's died. But they have these emotional outbursts. And and these expressions of grief can be more severe than those seen in the actual relatives and, and proper friends. And, okay, I know that some people are naturally more emotional than others. 
I'm, I'm quite I'm quite emotional. I always want to cry at funerals, uh, regardless of regardless of uh, how close I was t- to the person. But but the, sometimes some there's a, some people they <laughs> they like drama and they like to be at the very centre of the drama, and so y- you find people who are wailing uncontrollably about someone they barely knew and of course people are gathering round and consoling them and and some people some people seem to to enjoy that and I always remember my mum had a name for these people she called them professional mourners <laughs> professional mourners well little did I know that the concept of professional mourner was very real and is found in the Bible, no less. Because in that culture, those with money could hire the services of people who went from funeral to funeral making a great noise. Faking grief. Now, to us, that is very strange and even deceptive. You may see... You may see uh, funerals uh, on, on, the, on the news, uh, funerals in the Middle East. In some places, you'll see people who are making such a such a, a show, such a racket. You you can barely believe that it's genuine, and and this explains why. It's a, it's a different cultural way of expressing, uh, not just expressing actual grief, but marking the occasion we're not to judge other people's cultural habits by by our own because for for those people uh, in the middle east then and now the death of someone dear to them is something that should be broadcast as much as possible if it helps you understand all this try to think that Hiring people to create this loud noise of lamentation was thought of as a mark of respect to the memory of the one who died. And, okay, we, we don't do that. But, you know, in some ways, funerals uh, in, in, in the modern day can be far more extravagant than those in ancient times with the... Uh, Fancy hearses and coffins and so on. But Jairus, he likely belonged to the middle class. And if so, he'd have had the means to employ these professional mourners. And we can see from what happens next that this is most likely the case. Jesus tells the people not to worry. Because the girl is only asleep. And some of those mourners instantly... Laugh and mock. And it's difficult to imagine how they could turn from wailing in grief to mockery and laughter unless they were professionals who had no real attachment to the dead girl. Jesus clears them all out of the house. He lets the parents stay, of course. And he takes in just three of the disciples. He chooses Peter, James and John. 
They were quite a privileged trio. It was this three alone who got to see Jesus transfigured and were allowed to accompany Jesus to Gethsemane where he poured out his heart in prayer before dying for sinners. It's good that Mark records here the words of Jesus as they were spoken. Talitha kumai. Talitha kumai. It's an Aramaic term and this is the language Jesus used the most. If Hebrew was the language of formal worship and Greek the language of commerce, Aramaic was the language of the common man. In an act of tenderness, Jesus takes the girl, the dead girl, by the hand and speaks to her. Get up, little girl. And she does. And in a further act of thoughtfulness, Jesus tells her mum and dad to give her some food. She could have been ill for several days and not eaten uh, all the way through. You might recall that Jesus, after he had been resurrected, he he was looking for food. He was, he was hungry. I mean, he'd been dead for three days, after all. You might have thought it odd that Jesus tells the witnesses to keep it quiet. It's pretty obvious this is not something you could keep secret. I'd be amazed if they managed to keep the news from the crowd for more than five minutes. Uh, we can only conclude that this was another example of crowd management by Jesus. It gave him just a few minutes uh, like a, to make his escape. <laughs> I, said, I said earlier the delay in getting to this girl was planned. It tested the faith of Jairus. It exposed the unbelief of many of those mourners. And it made for a far more God-glorifying miracle. How wonderful it is to witness these miracles by Jesus. It just goes on and on. He's healed people of illness. He's cast out demons. He's changed the weather. And now he's brought a person back to life. I imagine his disciples thought nothing could stop this one. But they would see much more to amaze them. And one event would be the raising of Lazarus. There, Jesus wasn't dealing with someone who'd very recently died. He raised a man who'd been dead for four days. And if you revisit that account in John, you'll see that Jesus specifically said he was glad he didn't arrive earlier. Because it was through the death of Lazarus that Jesus Christ's power would be seen on a whole new level. Delays from our perspective are nothing of the sort in God's purpose. All things play out according to his wise timing. I can only laugh when my plans go awry. I, uh, I had great plans for New Road for the year 2020. Great plans. God-honouring plans. 
Many of them have been shelved or scrapped because God sent a microscopic creature to multiply and temporarily temporarily cripple the world. His ways are not our ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. We can only go back to his throne and say, Okay, Lord, your ways are right and true. Now, tell us, what should we do next? I wonder if these two females ever met afterwards. What, what an interesting conversation they'd have. One developed an illness at the same time as the other was born. In the incomprehensible purpose of God, a 12-year countdown had begun for both. And the countdown ended with a visitation by Jesus whose power would in both cases give new life. Well, we can, of course, use these two miracles to inspire us to think more about Jesus Christ and his so great salvation, but we're not to ignore what the story tells us at face value. Two incredible healings are recorded for us so we might read them and glorify God. They also cause us to be blessed inwardly as we feel happiness for those two subjects. Okay, we don't know them personally, they're long dead, but we can still smile when we think about the happiness that was brought into their lives and the lives of their families by our great healer. But let's consider the beginning and end states of these women. One had this issue of blood, as it's called. Now I'm certain that this was a case of very heavy menstruation, perhaps even continual. If you know anyone who's suffered from this, you'll know it can cause all kinds of problems. For one, Heavy blood loss can lead to anemia. And there were no iron supplements in those days, so the, the victims would just have to suffer a great loss in bodily strength. What made it worse, though, was their ritual uncleanness. In Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, it explains this. If a woman has an issue and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days, and whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the evening, and everything that she lieth upon in her separation shall be unclean, everything also that she sitteth upon shall be unclean. All whose... All who sin are ritually unclean in God's eyes and all the while all the while that their uncleanness remains they are in a state of separation 
As long as a man or woman remains in their sin, they are separated from God. And should they reach the end of their lives and not have their uncleanness of sin dealt with, their separation from God will continue into eternity. And it will be a separation of a far more extreme nature. Thank God that he saves sinners. He has a people whose fates he entrusted to his son. And Jesus Christ fulfilled the law for those people. And he prayed for those people. And and he gave his life for those people. And he rose from the dead as the first fruits of those people who he came to deliver. Consider how many sinners spend their lives trying to generate their own salvation. Like this woman, they suffer at the hands of others. They go to religious leaders, supposed physicians of the soul, looking for spiritual healing but find none. They expend time and effort and sometimes money too in useless attempts to find the meaning of life and their purpose in this world. And they end up empty-handed. And the shocking conclusion to all this is that they end up in a worse state than when they began. Listen to what this says in Psalms 108 and verse 12. Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. The men of this world cannot give you the proper answers. They cannot give you salvation. They cannot teach you salvation. They cannot point you in the way of salvation. They truly are blind men offering to show other blind men where to go. Job even uses this figure of the physician when he says, But ye are forges of lies, ye are all physicians of no value. Job 13 and 4. Worthless teachers. If worn out, burdened, heavy laden sinners approach us in despair, we are to show them Jesus. We're to encourage them to go to God in prayer. We're to tell them to reach out for Jesus so they might touch the hem of his garment. We're to promise them that a sincere effort to take hold on Jesus will be met with full and free pardon. Sinner, reach out to Jesus. Grasp the fringe of his garment of righteousness and refuse to give up until you too have felt his power heal you inwardly. Psalm 30 and verse 2 says, O Lord my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. Go to him and await his healing. Cling to him until the fountain of blood dries up within you. That continual issue of sin that so pollutes your soul that you cannot ever have fellowship with God.
Jesus is not put off by how filthy you are inside. There is no level of sin that will make you ineligible for God's mercy. Don't listen to the foolish physicians of this world who tell you that the bad people in this world are the murderers, the rapists and the drug dealers. God has saved murderers, rapists and drug dealers and much worse while passing by others. God's eternal hell will be full of people the world regards as morally upstanding. Jesus is not put off. Did an insane and violent demoniac frighten him off? Did he avoid a man because he had a severe skin disease? Was he embarrassed to associate with a woman who was permanently, ritually unclean? God forbid. In the case of Lazarus, he wasn't even put off by a corpse that had begun to decompose. Let's be clear. A sinner is, in one sense, dead. When Christ approaches such a sinner with a view to saving him, he sees nothing but a skeleton. There's no life in it. And we think of certain sinners, don't we? And God looks at us and asks, What do you think? Can these bones live? And then we're forced to ask ourselves if we believe it's really possible God can save even them. But Jesus will bring those bones to life. And as he regenerates someone by the power of the Holy Spirit, he soon has standing before him an individual who is now truly alive to God. This woman firstly needed to believe. John 20, 31. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you might have life through his name. We have in our Bibles a record of numerous evidences that Jesus is the Christ and there is no excuse for anyone to doubt. Through her God-given faith, this woman believed. She had an immediate assurance that she had been healed. But one thing remained. She had to publicly acknowledge her deliverance. You turn to the book of Romans and the 10th chapter. Romans chapter 10. And in the 9th and 10th verses, it says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confession is used in a couple of ways. 
One type is just an acknowledgement of guilt. But the one in Romans refers to the ongoing confession of Jesus Christ throughout the life of a believer. Paul agrees with John on this. They both tell us that a Christian life is not valid if this important element is missing. The woman was expected to publicly acknowledge that Jesus had healed her of an incurable disease. And saved sinners are expected to likewise publicly acknowledge that Jesus has healed them of their incurable disease of sin. I want to spend our remaining time looking at another doctrine that spins off from the raising of this young girl. Now, I've referred to salvation as being raised from the dead. And this is language the Bible uses often. The elect sinner goes from being dead in trespasses and sins to being spiritually alive. But we should also recognise that for the believer there is a second type of resurrection they'll enjoy. So if we count salvation as a sort of resurrection from the death of sin... We can then justly refer to a second resurrection. I mean, of course, that there's a day coming when all that have died in Christ will be raised to eternal life. Why did Jesus say this young girl was merely asleep? Did he mean that she wasn't truly dead, just unconscious? No. To show this, I'm going to read a few verses from the account of the raising of Lazarus. Uh, So turn with me to uh, John's Gospel and chapter 11. And we read in verses 11 to 15. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may Awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Lazarus was well and truly dead, yet Jesus refers to his state as sleep. Why? Because he means to teach them that he will as easily raise the dead on the last day as he would rouse a man from his sleep. On that day, when Jesus comes for us, it will make no difference what condition we're in. We could be recently deceased like this little girl. We could be like Lazarus. We could be nothing but dry bones like in Ezekiel's vision. And we could even have a long time before turned to dust and vanished into the environment. 
We don't know how Jesus will recreate us on that great and glorious day. And if he told us, we wouldn't understand. We're instead to accept the description Jesus gives us. It will be for us like we've been woke up from a short sleep. Our confidence that we'll live again is in the very resurrection of Jesus himself. We can quite rightly count the raising of this little child as a glimpse into that end time marvel. We can rightly view the even more amazing resurrection of Lazarus as a token of what we'll experience. But we remember that these and the others in the scriptures who were brought back to life eventually died again. Not so with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was more than a token. He was our forerunner. His resurrection gives us the guarantee of ours. Though we die, yet shall we live. Let's conclude by reading from 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. Starting at verses 19. If in this life only we are helping Christ, we are, of all men, most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Just as all who are in Adam die, all who are in Christ will be made alive. And the Bible is clear that being made alive is a description of the resurrection of the body. If you're listening to this and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we urge you to go to him, believe on him, receive assurance of salvation from him, confess him, and have the confidence that the day will come when you will be raised from the sleep of death and find yourself awake in the paradise of God forever. Don't be one of those on that shore who told Jesus to go away. Be one of those that welcomes Jesus, that says, come, Lord Jesus. And the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Revelation 22, verse 17. Amen.